That's a clown question, bro. Hi, what's up, Bunny? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to the show to be named later. We're talking baseball, kind of whenever. I'm your host, Christianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, we are just 145 days shy of that April 1st opening day. We are so close. You can almost just feel it. And we got a lot to talk about today. We got awards coming up. This is these This awards is probably the biggest voting process that this country has seen in the last week. Uh, very much so. I don't even, I, so. It's not even close. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Big time. I, I would agree. I would have to agree. Um, it's the, it's the thing. It's the thing I've definitely researched the most uh, probably out of, uh, out of, out of everything that's happened this month, but yeah, uh, it's award season. It's, it's one of our favorite, one of our favorite seasons, kind of, kind of on the low key. It's, it is. it's, it's one week, but it's where, you know, we eventually want to be in a spot where maybe, maybe we're voting for these awards or that something nice. of that nature. That would be unbelievable. But, you know, we love to evaluate, see, you know, see what our opinions are, see if the writers are, are kind of getting it right. See if we're thinking like the writers are, um, and yeah, it's a fun time. But first, we have some news. Um, I don't know what what happened chronologically. I think was it Between Steve Cohen first. Steve, I think Steve Cohen was first. Uh, Alex Cora was Friday. Steve Cohen was, I think, also Friday, maybe Thursday. Um, and then what was the other thing? Oh, um, Robbie Ray went to the Blue Jays. That was yesterday. Let's talk about Steve Cohen because I think that happened first. Uh, and it's probably the most important of these storylines because it is the end of an error in Queens, not an era, an error, as in like an E5 or an E6, but it's an E-O in ownership for the New York Mets. And it's finally, it has come to a merciful end. The Wilpons are no longer the owners of the New York Mets. They bought the team after their World Championship in 1986. And they got back there a couple times, but were never ultimately able to finish it out. And there was just a huge narrative running through New York. They weren't willing to spend money. They weren't opening up the checkbooks to anybody. And, I mean, people have been calling for this for so, so long, ever since I can remember. You know, the first time I was a baseball fan in, like, 2010, 2011, like, you know, I'm from New York, so I heard plenty of Mets fans talking about the Wilpons, you know. Um, there were radio hosts here calling them the coupons because they were so cheap. And – it's over. We don't have to think about this anymore. And Steve Cohen, who is worth $14 billion, is the new owner of the New York Mets franchise. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's huge. They're a big market team. And, you know, they weren't really, they were spending sort of like a mid-level team uh, for if a that. while there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, you have to give some credit where credit's due. I mean, they had like deals with like Carlos Beltran. They were able to extend. Yoannis Cespedes. But, you know, they weren't spending like how they should have been spending, which is probably like the Yankees, Dodgers, and uh, Red Sox. But yeah, yeah they, were, they were more mid-level. Um, and, you know, Steve Cohen's probably going to change that. And maybe, yeah. I mean, literally the whole, once I found out that the Wilpons bought after 1986 i'm like 
this might be a this might be a curse. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to make a bold prediction here, Chris. Um, the odds that the Mets get one of JT Real Muto or George Springer in this offseason, one of them, I'm going to put it at 100%. I'm going to lock that in. They are going to get one of those two. I don't know which one. My gut would say Springer, but I think they get one of those two. Yeah, I mean, either one would make sense. Uh, they were going after JT Real Muto in trade talks. Mm -hmm. Um, a couple of years ago when he was on the market, he ultimately went to the Phillies, but yeah, now they have an opportunity to nab him. He's probably the best catcher in baseball right now. Um, Wilson Ramos. He's the safest bet you have. Like, you know, when we talked about the great catchers last off season, the three like really good offensive catchers were him, Yasmani Grandal and Mitch Garver. And two of those three had down years offensively, and you can guess which one of them didn't. And it was also a premier defensive catcher as well. Yeah, and Wilson Ramos hasn't worked Gary out. Gary Sanchez as... has struggled offensively and strikes out a lot. Yeah, so the, the other catchers have not uh, worked out. Lived up to that great. expectations. Yeah, mm-hmm. not have, have not met expectations. And yeah, Springer, I mean, yeah, you could, like if you if you sign him, you can kind of, put him wherever really uh in the outfield um like who do they have in the outfield they got they Nimmo. Have, so they got Nimmo they got Conforto they got McNeil they had Cespedes but that didn't really work out uh I think primarily those three but I mean obviously you can plug George Springer in you could put McNeil wherever so I don't think Springer would would uh you know create sort of a log jam there yeah no, it, it's one of those things where it's it's not really a positional issue. Mm-hmm. So if you can't get real Muto for sure, then you go you go Springer there for sure. You have JD Davis as well. Yep, JD Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, if and it would be it would be a good PR move for Cohen to just go and splash first off. Season. Yeah, that's a great way to build a narrative. Yeah. when you've had this negative one and the one spending your money for years. Uh, although the theory that a lot of people have is that they're going to start trying to, they might flirt a little bit with DJ LeMahieu just to drive his price up. Because I mean, if you're the Yankees, you cannot, you cannot under any circumstances lose him. It doesn't matter who, who, where he goes, if he's anywhere else, but in the Bronx, that is a big problem for your friend. And if he's in Queens, that's going to set the tone for Cohen. That's going to, it's going to shake Yankee fans a little bit, I think. Yeah, no doubt. It would be because he, you know, he's an MVP finalist. He was the heartbeat of the Yankees offense. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. The Yankees fans would be very mad about that. And Mets fans, I imagine would be, would be very happy about that. Um, having, you know, an MVP finalist from the Yankees on your team. Um, but yeah, if, if he could just, you know, jack his price up a little bit, I guess that would, um, you know, that would be, that would be a, you know, good PR move as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, there's a lot to unpack with Cohen. Have you seen his Twitter page, by the way? Um, I haven't, I haven't gone fully into it. But he's, he is very active on Twitter for someone who is the owner of a professional sports franchise and he interacts with fans all the time. He answers all the questions and I love it. And, you know, I mean, it's obviously a great way to build a connection right away and to earn the trust of your fans because that's what's most important, really, um, as far as, you know, who you want to root for you. And 
He started by cutting house entirely. Brody Van Wagnon, gone. Omar Minaya, gone. The entirety of the front office, just gone. But he brought back Sandy Alderson, which I think is a good move because I do think Sandy Alderson is a guy who is willing to spend the money, but he was kind of just underneath the Wilpons wing, so to speak, uh, in his last tenure. And obviously, there were a lot of other reasons why I think Sandy Alderson didn't continue with the Mets. You know, he was diagnosed with cancer for a little bit, so that probably uh, took a lot out of what he was able to do. Uh, and thankfully, he is doing well now, which we'd love to see. And I really, I really glad that Sandy Alderson is getting another chance in New York. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it did seem like he was kind of uh, on a leash uh, with the Mets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll see what he and Cohen can do. Um, just un- unleashed, pretty much, literally unleashed. See what happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. You know, the Red we're Red Sox fans, and we kind of, uh, we kind of like Mets fans and kind of what the Mets bring because they're the other New York team. They're kind of the underdogs, so it's kind of it's kind of good to see. Um, do you think that this makes the Mets legitimate playoff contenders from the start? I mean, well, obviously, there's a lot of questions that have to be answered this offseason, but right now, I mean, I obviously feel more much more confident about them than I did with the Wilpons, but we've all known this is a team that is good on paper. Oh, yeah, and, like, yeah, they're always, like, a non-injured player away from maybe mm. making a run or, you know, a couple injuries away from making a run. And, you know, you add, a, you add another play, you add, you know, financial flexibility to that. Uh, that could be a thing. And also, the National League East is very unpredictable. I mean, we had the Marlins finishing in second this year. So I think yeah. really, really anything can happen. The Braves are probably going to be at the top. And then from, from number two down – Really, it's anybody's game. It, it seems like at least at least that, division, that was the case. Yeah, that division as a whole is very interesting because the Braves are the Braves. The Marlins broke out this year. The Mets have a new new owner. The Phillies have been, you know, right up there for a while. They just haven't really been able to finish the job and get to the playoffs. And then I think the Nationals, strangely enough, for the uh, for a team that very recently won a World Series, it might be in the worst position in the division. Yeah, possibly. Um, kind of an older team. And, that might be one of the hardest divisions to predict next year. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like it's I feel like it's sort of been that way uh, for a couple years. You know, with the Phillies kind of rejuvenating, uh, the Mets having always having a good team on paper, but never really pulling it together. And you know, the Nationals are they going to be good? Are they going to be bad? You never really know. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, it's always, uh, always interesting in the national league East and Steve Cohen buying the Mets definitely makes it more interesting. Uh, probably, yeah, probably the most interesting division out there. Um, especially when the Marlins, when the Marlins are, uh, in the playoffs, just out of that, that throws a wrench into everything really, because yeah. you, they, they now have, like, they were just like the, oh yeah, you know, like the Marlins are going to be there. They're in the, they're the bottom feeders. They're in the basement, but now you have to consider them because they forced it. Yeah. And it's probably not even if, and even, even if they go back to, you know, a 70 win team next year in a full slate of games, that doesn't mean we can't just, we can't not talk about them at the beginning of the season. Like they have forced that on us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you got, yeah, you have like talent is just kind of appeared 
uh, from last year with like Sanchez and Lopez and uh, a couple other guys, Miguel Rojas. You have new blood out there in Miami, so um, it helps out. And yeah, interesting division. Steve Cohen makes it even more interesting. Uh, any Anything more on this uh, ordeal? I'm excited to see what happens now because the Mets are an entirely different identity uh, in everyone's eyes. And we're going to get to see it on the field next year. And if there's a time for them to break through, it's now. Yeah. I think, I think they're kind of like as a, as an off season commodity, they're kind of just a, a bulldozer now. And they're mm-hmm. not really anything's getting in, in the way of them now, uh, which is good to see. Always good to see another uh, another player in the free agency sweepstakes. Always makes it interesting. And uh, another offseason deal happening in the East Coast, on the East Coast with another big market team. The Red Sox mm-hmm. have their man back. Alex Cora has returned to manage the Boston Red Sox. How about that? He sure has. And I think we alluded to this on an earlier show. This was going to happen. I mean, are we really surprised? Like when I, when I got this news on Friday morning, you know, I wasn't, I was obviously anticipating it, but when it happened, I was just like, yep, that's, that's it. That sounds about right. Like it wasn't, I mean, obviously I was excited, but it really didn't come out as much as I had anticipated just because it was so expected. And, you know, they went out, they did the interviewing process, you know, they didn't, they didn't half-ass it and just decide on Cora after like two seconds like they actually you know they interviewed guys like Sam Foles guys like Don Kelly Will Venable you know they put other names out there uh as soon as I got the reports that they were flying to Puerto Rico to meet with Cora that kind of did it for me like if you're coming to them that says it all yeah and the interviews did seem to be real because yeah it was the same archetype of managers the young early Mm -hmm. 40s uh type of guy um who's probably gonna go more into analytics and, you know, you know, what Alex Cora was doing, you know, uh, scheduled off days, things of that nature with, you know, Sam Fold, Will Venable, Don Kelly, and the rest of them. But yeah, I mean, I think after the interviews, they figured, you know, I, Alex Cora, he's worked already. And you, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, he, he led you, he helped lead you to a 108 win season and a world series. And, uh, you know, ha, you know, as a Red Sox fan, happy to have him back for sure. So there's going to be a lot of question marks next year because of course he, he was tied into the Astros cheating scandal. He was the bench coach in 2017. He enabled for that behavior and he was thrown under the bus by Jeff Luna, whether that was legit or not, it happened. And the Red Sox have addressed it. You know, they addressed it in the interviews. Cora seemed very apologetic with it. So I think he is ready to move on. And I think the Red Sox are ready to move on too. And especially since AJ Hinch also was able to find a job, there's no reason why Cora shouldn't. And obviously he wanted to be in Boston. The players wanted him. The fans wanted him. The front office wanted him. Heim Bloom, a guy who could have went out and hired his own guy, decided to bring back Cora anyway. So it's clear that this was the intention from sort of the very beginning, maybe even in January when they fired him. Yeah, yeah, it seemed that way. And especially, I think what helped was that that Wall Street uh, Journal article that we've referenced a bunch. It basically kind of debunked the MLB report 
and it basically was saying Astros kind of just scapegoated Alex Cora. It was really a, it was really from upper management. An employee introduced, made a presentation to the general manager Jeff Lunau before Alex Cora even got hired. So that I believe that it's a more believable prospe- process uh, from my point of view. It all make it makes a lot more sense, and you know, with that, I think it makes it makes it a little less controversial, especially for me. Um, and I think it makes a lot more sense. And yeah, Alex Cora, it's, it's going to be fun. And I think the 2021 Red Sox, I think they'll be, you know, I don't know if they'll be exactly playoff favorites, especially in a 10 team format, but they look a lot better uh, with Cora and with some added pitching help that we didn't really know was available um, for next year. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certainly still question marks on the table within the rotation, but you have Chris Sale. Let's say Chris Sale comes back in like May or June. That's probably the best case scenario. I'd say worst case scenario would be like August, September, somewhere around there. Uh-huh. So you're going to have Chris Sale for some amount of time in the 2021 season, more than likely. You're going to have Eduardo Rodriguez back. That's a guy who won 19 games in 2019. And I know that pitcher wins are, you know, we're skeptical about it, which is fair, but 19 wins doesn't happen on accident. And so, uh, he, you know, he finished sixth in the Cy Young. I think he finished sixth in ERA too, in like uh, baseball reference war and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That was kind of just the stat I had off the top of my head. Um, yep. But you had that. Nathan Ovaldi looked all right this year. And Tanner Houck was a guy who came up from the minors uh, who looked rather intriguing in his, in his first few starts. And then my prediction, one of my free agent predictions is that they're going to bring back John Lester uh, to like a one, two year deal. Uh, So that would make a five man rotation pending any depth moves. I don't really know who else they have, but um, you know, let's, you know, hypothetically, if you go into that season with that rotation, obviously they're going to need someone to replace sale for the first couple months. Um, But, you know, this is a team that can be taken more seriously now that Cora is up there because you have, you know, you, the players are now playing for someone who they want to play for. And believe it or not, that does make a very noticeable difference. And I mean, yeah. Do you have anything else to add? Uh, I mean, like uh, one other guy I'd add into uh, the mix is I think they're experimenting a little bit with Nick Pavetta too. So right. he, could, he could be that kind of that fifth guy. Um, and yeah, I, I think now, or, and, you know, last year you could kind of tell they, they weren't as in it as they were with Cora. It seemed kind of like a hopeless season. They ended up going, what, 24 and 36? Yeah. Yeah, I think. And even then they yeah. won a lot of games at the end too, so it really should have been a lot worse. Yeah, I think I would project like them. They were worse than the record suggests. Yeah, I would I would project them from uh, Christiana's proje- projections. I'd project them to be around 500 slightly above 500 if i had to guess now from where we are i think they're maybe like an 83 to 85 win team right now which is not a bad so they're going to replicate they're going to replicate 2019 is what you're saying yeah except it won't be as disappointing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um That's yeah i mean obviously there's still questions now. within the depth uh but they also said that they're going to be big spenders in the offseason um so i don't know i mean 
are they going to get a guy like Marcelo Zuna? Are they going to get a Michael Brantley? Are they going to go out and find, you know, a big free agent name out there? Because in reality, I think a lot, I think a theme among a lot of free agency predictions is that there's not going to be a lot of multi-year deals or big deals that are given out. Like I think MLB trade rumors had Michael Brantley getting like two years and like 15 million or something like that. Let me find that. Yeah, it's very, very hard to predict. And the Red Sox, you know, obviously they, they, they do have some sort of stigma because of the Mookie Betts trade of not being big spenders because they let go of that, of him because of financial flexibility. Um, but, you know, they've During obviously that- been willing to spend their money. They, there's countless examples of that. Yeah. Um, during that so, entire yeah. – during the Fenway Sports Group ownership, up until the Mookie Betts trade, they were giant, giant, giant spenders. Yes, they were the big. Yeah, okay. I was wrong in the money, but uh, MLB Trade Rumors has Michael Brantley going to the Braves on a two-year, twenty-eight million dollar contract. Twenty-eight million. Like that's so that's 14, 14 mil per year. I, so I don't think it's that aggressive. I mean, he got two years, thirty-two million. And he's two years. He, but that was after injuries. Like he didn't really get hurt all that much in Houston. That is true. That is true. But how old is he? Is he what? 32, 33? 34 in May. Okay. He turns 34 in May. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, we know from the free agent market, it's no country for old men. And I mean, I know, I know it's not that old, but it's. I think know, Michael Brantley does have a play style, like someone who can have longevity though. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like he's not like he's a very consistent, like pretty good hitter, along with quality defense. Like it's not like he's gonna be like this giant peak type of guy with a with a steep, you know, downhill spiral from there. Like I think, like I would like, would we really be surprised if Michael Brantley was thirty eight, hitting like two seventy with like an eight oh nine OPS? Yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't be that surprising, but yeah, I mean, I I could see it. I, I could see a two, maybe three-year deal from him if it were a different market, like three or four, four-year deal. But mm-hmm. it's, it's very, very hard to project for sure. It's Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of questions that are going to be answered, I'd say, by – it's weird because I think free agency is going to move very slowly this year because of the decreased market due to the, uh, the losses that everyone had with COVID this year. And the winter meetings, like the in-person event is, is canceled. Like, I'm sure, I mean, I don't know how the winter meetings are going to happen. I don't know if there's going to be a big spike in, um, you know, activity transactions that happen then, but I mean, I'm sure the public isn't going to be there. Yeah. I mean, I guess luckily for us, I mean, not a lot, not a lot has been happening at winter meetings lately because you know, it's easier mm-hmm. to communicate with people. It's not like, it's not like the year 2000 where you could just text somebody offers and have, you know, a, you know, a list of agents you're talking to. Now you have that available. Um, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's why you can do these kind of virtual things. So, you know, luckily there is, there are those avenues. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I mean, Garrett Cole went in the winter meetings last year. So, so did Anthony Rendon. So I think, I mean, there was a lot of free agents or winter meetings activity last year. Um, I mean, I, that's, there's a lot of questions that are still to be answered about the dynamics of this offseason. 
but anyway, Alex Cora, right? He's coming back to Boston. And yeah. Red Sox fans should rejoice because this is a guy that everyone wanted. And it's clear that the team is better with him. Yeah. I mean, all in all, he's just he's just a good manager. And he's probably a top five manager in baseball. So, mm-hmm. you know, all in all, everyone, everyone in Red Sox nation should be happy about that. Uh, and I guess the last thing we'll get into from the American League East, a uh, bit of a minor deal, but it kind of kicked off free agency, a little little one-year, $8 million deal for Robbie Wright. But what I will say is maybe maybe this is a positive for the players because Robbie Wright came off a pretty bad year and he was still able to get $8 million, even with this whole revenue thing uh, happening, yeah. you know, revenue loss. And the Blue Jays are dropping $8 million on him. So maybe a good sign for the players. Yeah, I mean, this could, yeah, I mean, $8 million, um, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a ton, but I think this deal could have a lot of upside for Toronto um, in in the best case scenario. I mean, I think worst case, you know, $8 million isn't the end of the world, but it's also not bad for a guy like Robbie Ray, who's struggled a lot since his peak years of, of 2017, 2018. Um, he's never really been the same since then, but I think there, that potential can still be there. And, you know, this is a lefty heavy rotation being that uh, Junjin Ryu is the number one pitcher in this rotation being a lefty. But um, I mean, I think the Ray deal is decent. Like, I don't see why you shouldn't have brought him back. I know we did have a 4.79 ERA with an even worse FIP uh, in the brief time he spent with Toronto last year. But this is a team that needs rotation depth while Nate Pearson begins to develop. So, I mean, why not? Yeah, why not? It's a good deal for both sides. I mean, you have the Blue Jays. They really lack uh, rotation depth, and you know Robbie Ray is a is a guy with an arm who can throw baseballs. So that's always a plus. And also, Robbie Ray, he's heading into his age twenty nine season. He basically gets to redo his contract year and maybe change some people's minds. Maybe eventually get that yeah. multi year, uh, create you know, fifteen also- million plus average annual value. Robbie Ray goes very under the radar um, as far as guys who can produce strikeouts. Uh, in 2017, he led the league, the National League, in strikeouts per nine with 12.1. And he has had no less than than uh, than 11.8 uh, every year since then. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with, uh, with control. Walks were a big issue this year. If he can tone that down, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't think a lot of people are, are hitting – hitting his stuff like crazy necessarily so it's really about control you know obviously what it's all about controlling and commanding the baseball uh and using using the zone to your advantage all those all the cliches for pitching that's all Robbie Ray really has to do you know it is cliche and I know that you know doing that doesn't always immediately point to run prevention uh because obviously he has struggled with that uh but you know, for whatever it's worth, um, it's not it's not a bad thing at all. Yeah, it's just it's it's the basics, and you know he's already he's already somewhere so, uh, striking out twelve guys per nine. So I want to I want to get into this here. Um, since two thousand seventeen, the uh, among pitchers with five hundred innings pitched, there of which there are thirty nine. The strikeouts per nine rankings are as follows. Number one, Chris Sale with 13.21. 
Number two is Max Serger with 12.3. Number three is Robbie Ray. He's right there at number three behind Chris Sale and Max Serger with 12.7, just ahead of Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, Jacob deGrom, Trevor Bauer, Charlie Morton, Steven Strasburg, and Carlos Carrasco rounding out the top 10. So this is one of the premier strikeout artists in the game. So, I mean, and, you know, out of this list, I'm looking at it here, all these guys since 2017 have very low ERAs with the exception of Robbie Ray. But this is an indicator that he really could turn it on uh, if he's able to figure some of his things out. He needs to make an adjustment, whatever that may be. But the potential is definitely there for this to have high upside for Toronto. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, yeah, like I said, a uh, good deal good deal for both sides, especially, like, you know, the Blue Jays aren't really a team. They're a team that can contend now. So uh, so having a guy on a one-year deal doesn't seem like a, a waste of time. No. But uh, anyway. I, mm-hmm. So uh, I'm looking at this uh, this chart here on Fangraphs. Out of these 39 pitchers, uh, the top 30 has only one pitcher with at least four walks per nine, and it's Robbie Ray with 4.75. So. Oh, Yeah. So that's obviously the adjustment you need to make is uh, command the zone. And in fact, he is the war. He has the worst walk rate among the 39 pitchers. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is the, uh, that's the, that's the deal breaker. Uh, Figure that out. Yeah. But anyway, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if Ryu's walk stats went down at all this year in his first year with Toronto. Um, just to see if maybe there was, is like a, there's like a translation. No, it kind of, it like doubled cause he was at like 1.0 and then it went up to like 2. Yeah, it sure did. It sure did. It went from 1.18 to 2.28. Yeah. But like also you, well, you're walking 2.3 batters per nine. It's not really a big deal. <laughs> no, it's still not, but, uh, 4.75 can't happen. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, technically, Robbie Ray's walk rate did go down when he went to Toronto last year. It's a small sample size, but and it was still like almost seven. But hey, you know, maybe a good sign there from for Robbie Ray and Blue Jays. I don't know. If he, if Robbie Ray can cut down the walks, he could be a legitimate star for Toronto to Absolutely. go behind a potential a potential Pearson development and Hyunjin Ryu. That makes a strong three-headed rotation. Yeah, I mean, this was a guy that the Diamondbacks weren't going to give him up unless they got, like, the Yankees' entire farm system. Yeah, they were like, we want Clint Frazier, Miguel Andujar, Aaron Judge, uh, John Carlos Stanton, but you guys still pay, and we'll, we'll give you guys Robbie Ray. Yeah, that's what, yeah. They were like, we will take all of Monument Park. Uh, <laughs> we will, we will... Uh, Stock in the New York Yankees for Robbie Ray. For this we will build a Luis Gonzalez statue outside of Yankee Stadium. And we will pay for that statue. Yeah. That's and we'll give you guys Robbie Ray. We'll give you we'll give you this lefty with a three seven five ERA. <laughs> but very good strikeout numbers. Very so good don't look at the walks, they don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's only a guy getting the first. You like punch outs? You like Robbie Ray. Here we yeah, go. That's right. But anyway, on to sort of the main topic of the show. Mm-hmm. We alluded to this earlier. It's award season. 
Monday, Monday, November 9th, they are announcing the AL and NL rookies of the year. Tuesday, November 10th, they are announcing the managers of the year from the AL and NL. Uh, Wednesday, November 11th, they are uh, announcing the AL and NL Cy Youngs. And then lastly, Thursday, November 12th, they are announcing the MVPs. And we're going award by award. Uh, this is being recorded on Sunday night. So this is, I'm actually, this year it all aligned. I I did picks and then I did predictions, but all my picks aligned with my pr- predictions. So uh, Okay, was, not all mine do. Yeah, because I, I, there were some where I, I was thinking there might be some, uh, some, what, what would be the word? Opposite of correlation, but I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not an English major, but anyway, mm-hmm. we're going to start with, uh, I guess the American league rookie of the year. You always start with the American league. Um, I don't know. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's alphabetical. Alphabetical. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, I'll go, I'll go over the three candidates. So, uh, the first candidate I will mention is Kyle Lewis. Uh, Kyle Lewis has kind of been like the favorite for rookie of the year during the season. Uh, he leads all AL rookies in F war offensive wins above replacement and offensive runs above average. Uh, this year he hit 262 with an 801 OPS in 242 plate appearances. And then the next candidate, I will talk about is Luis Robert, uh, center fielder for the White Sox. Uh, he led all American League rookies in baseball reference war. Uh, Lewis led in F war, but he led in baseball reference war. Uh, and he also led in defensive wins above replacement and stolen bases. Lewis, Lewis versus Luis. Yeah. Uh, and Luis led among all AL rookies in stolen bases as well. He ended up hitting 233 with a with a 738 OPS and 227 plate appearances. And so, he was Luis Robert was also a Luis Robert was also a stat cast machine on both sides. Seven outs above average and uh just great offensive like exit velocity and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I was about to mention he was tied for second among all fielders in outs above average. Mm-hmm. And uh he actually has won some hardware already, he won a gold glove um as a rookie, which is good to see. And then the last candidate is Christian Javier. Uh, he is tied for the lead in all, for uh, all American League rookie pitchers in baseball reference war. Uh, he had a 3.48 ERA and 54 and a third innings. And some stat heads might look at his 4.94 FIP. Uh, don't let that FIP fool you because his expected ERA was actually 2.94 uh, and his hard hit percentage and ex-WOBA against were both in the 90th percentile. So I don't think the FIP really means anything there, especially when you have the savant stats behind it. So how are you looking at this rookie of the year race, uh, Daniel Curran? So when I'm evaluating a pitcher versus a hitter, uh, in the case of Christian Javier here, um, you know, I think obviously the average baseball fan would sway towards the hitter because, you know, they obviously get to, they get to perform on a more frequent basis. They get to make highlights, they get more opportunities for it. Um, I just don't think Javier was dominant enough to really get that consideration, especially considering what the other two did. So I think Javier finishes third in this race. And I was very excited to see the close race to the finish between Kyle Lewis and Luis Robert. But Luis Robert went through a big slump in the month of, month of September 
With that being said, Kyle Lewis is my rookie of the year. I, I uh, told people to watch out for him in the preseason. I remember one of the questions you asked me was who leads the Mariners in home runs. And I said, Kyle Lewis, uh, and he ended up hitting 11 this year after hitting six and 18 games in 2019. And he produced 1.7 fan graphs war had 126 weighted runs created plus and is kind of the, the face of the rebuild in Seattle right now. So I am going to go with Kyle Lewis as my American league rookie of the year. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a good pick. Uh, also, I forgot to mention, I, there's some honorable mentions I think uh, I should talk about because there were, there were some decent ones that, that weren't finalists. Uh, Sean Murphy of the Oakland Athletics, he had a 131 OPS plus in 43 games. He was a rookie. He's a catcher for the Athletics. Uh, and then Justice Sheffield actually had a 3.58 ERA and a 3.17 FIP in 55 and a third innings for the, uh, for the Mariners uh, teammates with Kyle Lewis. And I actually wrote down some notes. I, I put it under a segment, Kyle Lewis versus Luis Robert, because I actually think this might be a little closer than some people think, um, at least statistically. Optics, I'm not really sure. Um, there's no significant difference in playing time between the two. Uh, Lewis's weighted runs created plus and OPS plus were both 25% higher than Robert's. Uh, Lewis had a 126 and Robert had a 101 uh, Robert had four more stolen bases than Lewis uh, Robert had nine Lewis had five but their uh, base running runs which is a stat that evaluates base running on fan graphs uh, that was identical so according to fan graphs they were pretty much identical base runners uh, Luis Robert hit 241 with runners in scoring position and Kyle Lewis hit 192 with runners in scoring position. So both kind of struggled uh, with the men in scoring position. Uh, Robert was a gold glove defender. He had seven outs above average and Lewis was a relatively average uh, defensive player. He had one out above average uh, and both kind of similarly had, you know, struggled down the stretch. They didn't really, they were really sprinting through the finish line uh, with their seasons uh, Lewis in his last 29 games, which was basically half the season, had a 545 OPS. And Robert in his last 23 games had a 409 OPS, uh, which was the downfall that Daniel was talking about. Uh, Kyle Lewis ended up having the advantage and win probability added, which is kind of a, a clutch statistic. He had 0.3 win probability added. Robert had negative 0.5. And Lewis had the advantage in F war by 0.2. Robert had the advantage in B war by 0.2. So uh, in conclusion, how I look at it, Kyle Lewis's offensive advantage is enough for him to win rookie of the year. Uh, Lewis was not a defensive liability and was not on the same level. Uh, he was not on the, he was not a defensive liability and he was on the same level uh, on the bases as Robert. So his advantage in offensive production is enough to give him the award. And I believe Kyle Lewis should win the American League Rookie of the Year. And I believe he will win the American League Rookie of the Year. I agree. So on to after, after that, I found that interesting because Luis Robert did have spectacular defensive statistics and he wasn't crazy far yeah. off offensively. Um, but, it's crazy because he's one of those guys that can just hit balls like 490 feet and kind of the stigma around them is that they're, they're not 
they're usually like first basemen or like DHs. They're not usually, or maybe third basemen. They're not usually outfielders who can move move around in the outfield, and that's what Luis Robert is. Yeah, he's definitely an exciting uh, player of the future. Mm-hmm. That's what these rookie of the year votings uh, are kind. Of, it's kind of a celebration of what the future might bring, and uh, those two. Sometimes, and sometimes it's Michael Fulmer. Yeah, sometimes it's Michael Fulmer, or uh, I don't know who's <laughs> who's another flop. That's that's the one. Know. But now on to the National League Rookie of the Year. We got Jake Cronenworth, who is a second baseman for the Padres, Devin Williams, who was a reliever for the Brewers, and Alec Bohm, who is a third baseman for the Phillies. Um, did you uh, do you want to kind of go into your analysis of what you're thinking about with this Rookie of the Year vote? Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier with the whole pitching versus hitting thing, I do think that hitting gets more attention. So that being said, I think that Jake Cronenworth is going to be the winner. Uh, he, I mean, he was one of my first how about that's of the season after like nine games or something like that. Um, so obviously I was very excited about him from the beginning and he just never really slowed down. Alec Baum came up around mid-season-ish and went very under the radar. So I will uh, tip my cap to him. However, I think the winner of this award should be Devin Williams. Uh, he was absolutely absurd this year. One earned run over 27 innings pitched, 17.67 strikeouts per nine. That's absurd as it is. But also he had a 61% ground ball rate. So this guy gave up virtually zero fly balls. He only gave up, the only run he gave up was a home run to Colin Moran in his second outing of the year. And in the months of of August and September, he literally had a zero ERA, which is absurd. Uh, His changeup was one of the most unhittable pitches in baseball this year. I think, I think Colton Wong was the only person to get hit off of it, if I'm not mistaken. So that was absolutely ridiculous. Um, this guy came out of literally nowhere and had, granted, 60-game season, probably the most dominant reliever season possibly that I've ever seen. I mean, literally one earned run. That Let's say that equates to like three earned runs over a 162-game sample. That's still absolutely ridiculous. And with those strikeout numbers and ground ball numbers, I'm going with Devin Williams as my NL Rookie of the Year. Yeah, that's a that's a, a good pick. I am I'm kind of looking at this uh, where kind of all three candidates intrigue me uh, in their own ways. Jake Cronenworth is kind of the guy that was that was always there. Um, if this is a most valuable rookie, um, if this is a most valuable rookie argument, you know, with, in terms of value, yeah, that's that changes it up. That might change it up. With Cronenworth, uh, he had 192 plate appearances. He hit 285 with an 831 OPS. Uh, he was second in B WAR and F WAR among NL rookies, behind uh, Key Brian Hayes, who went off for 24 games, but it was 24 games, so he doesn't get to be a finalist. Uh, and I think he still has his rookie status for next year. So, um, yeah, Key Brian. You know, Hayes. Ra- you know Randy Rosalina still has his rookie status intact. Oh, is that true? Yeah, that is true. That's that's pretty crazy. Um, so he's going to be a very popular pick. And uh, another guy who still has his rookie status intact, uh, you know, pretty good pitcher, had a 195 ERA this year, 11.4 strikeouts per nine. Doesn't need to work on the walks a little bit. Uh, he had a 246 ERA plus. Uh, you already know who I'm talking about, Chris, so you could just say it. Um, Ian Anderson. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. He still has his rookie status next year. That is true. That is true. Um, but yeah. back to back to Jake Cronenworth. He was uh, third in uh, offensive runs above average and and defensive runs above average among National League rookies, and he was second in offensive wins above replacement. Uh, he hit 289 with runners in scoring position, uh, very respectable, and he had three outs above average. So he was like kind of the consistent good rookie, had a very good rookie campaign. Then, of course, Devin Williams, National League reliever of the year. That's really most of what you have to say. Also, mm-hmm. one, earned, one earned run allowed in 27 innings, 53 strikeouts, 0.86 FIP. Uh, that's what... That's all I have for Devin Williams. And then Alec Bohm, he actually kind of has an underrated rookie campaign. He had 338 with an 881 OPS and 180 plate appearances. Almost had as many plate appearances as Jake Cronenworth. Cronenworth had more games because he was a pinch hitter uh, in some of those games. Alec Bohm, also fascinatingly enough, he hit 452 with runners in scoring position this year. Uh, I found that pretty surprising. And he had one out above average uh, in uh out in the defense and you know baseball reference and fan graphs defensive metrics are not as nice to him as baseball savant so i think he should be getting a little more consideration than like baseball reference or fan graphs would give him but ultimately uh i am going with devin williams as my rookie of the year um because he was the best at what he did Mm -hmm. in all of major league baseball um and Cronenworth's and Bohm's numbers do not outweigh that enough, uh, even though they were everyday players. So I think Devin Williams, because of the excellence of this season, he it's no doubt for me that he should win the National League Rookie of the Year, and I believe he will win the National League Rookie of the Year. So on to American League Manager of the Year, which will be announced on Tuesday. By the way, I have a question. What happens if someone, like, absolutely destroys the league but still doesn't uh... – obtain their rookie status so they just win rookie of the year twice think um, about that for a second like what if alec Baum had like one less than the than the minimum amount of plate appearances to, to have rookie qualifications but it's but he just does well enough to like get rookie of the year and then he just is still intact next year is that is that allowed do you have I mean, to have rookie status to be eligible it's only a problem that we would see this year yeah it is because, like, what if Ian Anderson gets Rookie of the Year votes? What if Randy Arozarena gets Rookie of the Year votes? I mean, I, I feel like they should, I feel like that should be allowed. Like, if you just – It's you like, just dude, if you, if you have a 5,000 OPS through 30 plate appearances, why, why shouldn't you get Rookie of the Year votes, even if you're not – even if you can get them again next year? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I agree with that state of mind. Because Key Brian Hayes is kind of that guy. Yes, like, what if – yeah. Like, Key Brian Hayes would be, like, the prime example. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't think he would have won it regardless, but that's, like, that's a possibility. Yeah. If someone does insanely well enough. Yeah, and for those unaware, Key Brian Hayes, I believe, had an 11-24 OPS in 24 games. For the Pirates. Yeah, he was uh, reportedly the third person to go over in the Archer deal. Yeah. That would have been even worse. He could have been a Ray. And uh, speaking of Rays, Kevin Cash is in the American League Manager of the Year uh, voting. Uh, do you want to do you want to talk about what you're doing with the American League Manager of the Year? 
Yeah, I'm giving it to Kevin Cash. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna analyze. I mean, I think that's just the obvious choice. You have Charlie Montoya and you have Rick Renteria. Uh, the fact that he no longer has a job says about everything you need to know. Um, he finished third in his own division. Granted, he did, he did make the playoffs, but he wouldn't have made it if not for the 60 game uh, or for the um, the expanded playoff format. So uh, Rick Renteria is out in my book, just like he's out of his job. And Charlie Montoya, he just snuck into the playoffs with the Blue Jays, also would not have made it without the expanded playoff and by all means, I do like what he did this year. Uh, I do think he put that team in a much better position for the future. Uh, but Kevin Cash, I mean, with all the injuries that he dealt with this year, with, with Colin Poche, with Chaz Rowe, with Yanni Chirinos, with Andrew Kittredge, with uh, – there have been so many this year. Um, and he's been able to press on, and he led his team – with the 27th highest payroll in the league to the best record in the National League, in the American League, I'm sorry. Uh, obviously, we don't consider playoffs for this. Uh, for everyone wondering about the thing, you know, that thing that will not get considered. Uh, so Kevin Cash is the manager of the year. Yeah, I, I, I did a little bit of uh, as much as as much analysis you, as you can do for a manager of the year. This is this, the most- a, this award is so arbitrary. It's not they, they, the only value that's actually measured by the writers is just the guy who did better than expected yeah. award winner. Yeah, and that's why like Rick Red and Trio probably will get first place votes because there is improvement, but it's mm-hmm. it's kind of nonsense. But yeah, I to uh, point out Kevin Cash. Yeah, Rays had the fourth lowest payroll in baseball. He faced a lot of pitching injuries. Uh, he also for in-game managing stuff, he used pinch hitters the most times out of any AL team, uh, and he had a 100, uh, 101 weighted runs created plus with them, so he used his average. as well. Uh, also, second most reliever innings in the American League, and his relievers had a 3.37 ERA, probably put them in good spots. Uh, he was projected, and the Rays were projected to be like second in the division, ended up with the best record in the AL, so that's kind of how he handled expectations. Uh, Rick Renteria, the winning percentage did go from 447 to 583 in 2020. But, you know, I'm not really sure about his methods. It seemed like a young team was kind of progressing on its own. Young guys like Anderson, Jimenez, um, veteran leadership from Abreu, also young guys like uh, Luis Robert, Yoan Mancada, Giolito, um, Dylan Cease. Uh, kind of progressed on their own. I don't know if it was because of the manager necessarily. And then Charlie Montoyo, he was able to overcome some shallow pitching depth, uh, but still in my mind, they were a 32 and 28 team. It's not a huge deal. So in conclusion, Kevin Cash uh, was the best manager in baseball in 2020, and he will be getting rewarded for it. Kevin Cash should win American League Manager of the Year, and I believe he will win American League Manager of the Year uh sort of finally because was he a finalist last year because i know he was in 2018 he was a finalist last year and in 2018 yeah so he's getting his uh long-awaited due uh in terms of that award so now on to the national league this one this one is a pretty interesting one um in terms of different situations um and different ways of improving the team uh pretty pretty interesting one we have here 
So the three candidates are Jace Tingler of the San Diego Padres, David Ross of the Chicago Cubs, and uh, I'm blanking on the other one. Who is the other one? Uh, Don Mattingly. Don Mattingly. Yep, Don Mattingly of the Marlins. Um, I think. Okay, before I announce Jace Tingler, I would like to acknowledge what Don Mattingly did this year. He had to deal with a ton of adversity with his team from the very jump. Obviously, a COVID outbreak within the organization four days into the season, they had to make over 170 transactions throughout the year just to keep, just to, just to be able to field a team, not even to put a good team on a field, just to have guys available that can play baseball. That's what the Miami Marlins had to go through this year. And not only did they do that, but he also got them to the playoffs for the first time since 2003 as a franchise. That is very, very impressive. So Don Mattingly, I'm going to tip your cap to you. As I give the award to Jace Tingler, this is a guy who was in a division that, you know, we all said was a lock at the beginning of the year, and he made it into an interesting, interesting division. I mean, we, you know, there was two weeks left in the season, and we couldn't just lock in the Dodgers as the NL West champions. We had to, like, wait a second uh, to make sure that everything was going to be right because of what Jace Tingler did. And might I add, he had the, he and the Padres had the second best record in the National League. They would have been the two seed if it was like seeding like the NBA. So with that being said, Jace Tingler is your National League Manager of the Year. Yeah, so I, I kind of went at it um, with analysis. I'm It's it's hard to kind of measure uh, what was going on with these teams. Jace Tingler, his team went from a 432 winning percentage in 2019 to a 617 winning percentage. And I think there might have been a possible culture change uh, and I think he was kind of the young, the young manager of the young team that was necessary in San Diego. Uh, and mm-hmm. it worked out a lot there. Don Mattingly, uh, his team went from a 352 winning percentage in 2019 to a 517 winning percentage in 2020, kind of similar numbers to uh, Tingler's. And, you know, he did what he could with a young underdeveloped roster. And yeah, he faced all that adversity, but I think some of that adversity ultimately Um, played into his advantage and what I mean by that is he did very well in seven inning games he went the Marlins went 10 and 4 in seven inning games and 18 and 23 in nine inning games and I know you kind of manage the games that you have but it's I think it's sort of easier to manage a seven inning game and they did pretty pretty well in those so I kind of put that as a detriment to him I don't know if it's exactly the right thing to do you know, you can't really control that, but he did go 18 and 23 in, in nine inning games. Um, but he did face all that adversity at the beginning of the season. And then David Ross, I mean, his team went from third to first place under his leadership and he kind of did the job that he had to do. I just don't think that job was as hard as the, as the other guys' jobs. And I'd actually like, you know what, in honor of the election, I'm going to add not a third party candidate, but a fourth party candidate, this guy's not going to win. He's not going to get much of the vote, but I think he should be mentioned um, because this, these, these, this team was kind of expected to be bottom feeders and they almost got into the playoffs. Uh, I want to talk about Gabe Kapler for a second. Uh, He almost led his team to the playoffs despite being projected to be a last place team. And also, I mean, who knows? Yeah. Who knows if this is a valid stat, but he used the most pinch hitters, out of anyone in baseball and those pinch hitters had a 931 OPS. So I don't know if he had the magic touch. I don't know if those pinch hitters had the magic touch, 
but it was pretty wild what those pinch hitters were doing uh, for Gabe Kapler. So I think it was, I think I should have mentioned uh, that, but ultimately um, based on the numbers, it's hard to measure each candidate's in-game manage managing skills. Uh, Ross seemed to do his job, um, but his job of redirecting the Cubs was not as hard as Matting Lee's and Tingler's job. And uh, between those two, I think Tingler was the most complete manager and he was the exact guy they needed and he did exactly what they needed him to do. And he got the second best record in the national league. So uh, I think Jace Tingler should win national league manager, manager of the year. And I believe he will win uh, yeah. national league manager of the year. I think it's going to be a dead heat though. I think Mattingly is going to get some votes as well. I think the writers kind of like him as well. So maybe a little, a little biased, but uh, you know, he, you know, he, he sort of earned it, but yeah, on to the American league Cy Young. So am I, am I going to go? Uh, yeah, sure. Just, All right. So, yeah. you know, I evaluate these, these three candidates here. We have Shane Bieber, we have Kenta Maeda and we have Hyunjin Ryu. And I look at what Kenta Maeda did this year. This is a guy who came over to the Twins in this whole fiasco with the Red Sox and the Dodgers. So much confusion was, was given to him. And he ends up in Minnesota on a team that had a lot of questions within their rotation depth. And what does he do? Goes out, pitches 66 innings with a 270 RA and leading the American League in whip with a 750. An amazing season that will be good enough for second place in the Cy Young voting. I, I, I was hoping I kind of got you there. Yeah, obviously the answer is Shane Bieber. Uh, this is not even a discussion to be had. Um, he was the best pitcher in baseball from day one this season. Uh, we literally referenced his game one performance on the opening day uh, recap show. And it went from there, a 1-6-3 ERA, eight and one record, 122 strikeouts in 71 and a third innings pitched. Are you serious? Yeah, a FIP of 207. I mean, there's not much to be said other than anyone with half a brain could figure out that Shane Bieber is the American League Cy Young this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not, you know, I'll spoil it. Shane Bieber's my pick too, but I figured I should shoot some love out to Hyunjin Ryu and, and Kenta Maeda. Uh, Hyunjin Ryu, he was second mm -hmm. in B-War among pitchers, uh, among American League pitchers. Uh, he was fourth in ERA with a 269 and sixth and fifth with a 300. And actually, Hyunjin Ryu probably had one of the toughest uh, roads. And this is something I considered because each pitcher had uh, an entirely different schedule because they were only facing one third of the country, basically. Hyunjin Ryu, 10 out of 12 of his starts came against teams with OPS pluses of 100 or better. Uh, those those teams were the Rays, Yankees, Braves, Orioles, Mets, and Phillies. Obviously, obviously he faced some of those teams multiple times. But yeah, 10 out of 12 of those starts were above average offenses. That's basically the number uh, of, of average. And I think he – I believe Hyunjin Ryu is a solid Cy Young runner-up. Uh, I think he should get second place based on him pitching in the East. Uh, Kenta Maeda – uh, he's fifth in ERA. He was fifth in ERA with a 2.70, fifth and fifth with a 3.00, fifth in strikeouts per nine with 10.8. And as Daniel mentioned, he led the league in whip with 0.75. Uh, 
uh, although 10 out of 12 of his starts came against teams with an OPS plus of less than 100. So he was facing 10 out of 12 of his, of his starts were against below average competition. So I put that a, a bit against him. And mm -hmm. I think, but he can't control that. Like he did what he was supposed to do against those teams. Yeah. I mean, he did what he was supposed to do, but Hyunjin Ryu had similar numbers against different competition. So I give Ryu mm -hmm. uh, the advantage there. And yeah, Maeda was facing those 10 teams or those teams that he faced 10 times, Indians, Pirates, Brewers, and Tigers. Um, so he had uh, a bit of an advantage with that. Not, not to his fault. He still had a spectacular season, but in terms of voting, I put that against him a little bit. And then the main event, Shane Bieber led the league in wins with eight hits per nine with 5.4 strikeouts with 122 strikeouts per nine with 14.2 FIP with 207 ERA plus with 281 and ERA with a 163 ERA. He did not allow an earned run in six of his 12 starts and uh, all six of those starts, he went five plus innings pitched and five out of six of those uh, starts without an earned run. Um, he went six plus innings. So those were quality starts. Uh, he never allowed more than three earned runs. And each time that he allowed three earned runs, it was actually a quality start. He did not go less than six innings. Uh, never allowed more than six hits. He had seven games with less than three earned runs allowed and 10 plus strikeouts. No one else had more than five such games this year. And uh, five, you know, about five of his uh, 12 starts came against teams with an OPS plus of a hundred or better. So the opponents he was facing was not really largely, largely skewed as uh, maybe it would have been implied with, uh, with the central. It was kind of an average schedule. So definitely should not be uh, going against him with that. And Shane Bieber is the clear choice. Shane Bieber should and will win the American League Cy Young. Uh, pretty, pretty clear choice with that one. Uh, on to the NL. I don't, if that one, if that one, if if that one isn't unanimous, someone is getting fired. Yeah, absolutely. NL. This is probably the most interesting race out of any award because all three of these guys. I don't think anyone's mad if any particular one of the three win it. Like there is a legitimate case to be made for all three. You uh, Darvish produced the most wins above replacement in the league and also had by far the lowest walk rate uh, to go along with 11 strikeouts per nine innings. And he had a 201 ERA with a 223 fit. Very good. Jacob deGrom led the strikeout parade with 13.76 per nine, was just overall consistent in every area, uh, just extremely good. And then there's Trevor Bauer, also there with the strikeouts with 12.33, led ERA with a 173, uh, but did have a, a bit of a higher FIP with a 288. Uh, I really do think the sample size of this season is going to contribute to the way this award is viewed, because I think if this was done on a greater scale, then I think Bauer doesn't get as much love because of the peripherals. Uh, and with that said, my 2020 National League Cy Young Award winner is Trevor Bauer. Trevor Bauer. Trevor Bauer is my Cy Young. He led in ERA. He led in, I, I'm not going to say he led in complete games. That doesn't count. Uh, they were both seven innings. He led an ERA plus with 276. He led in whip. He led in hits per nine. And he was right up there in virtually every statistic. Uh, he was probably just the most consistent pitcher in the league. And he did it with all that flair. So I am going to 
put Trevor Bauer. Also, uh, I know I don't think this is going to be put into much perspective, but the left on base rate for him is very impressive as well. It was 90.9%. That means uh, nine out of 10 runners that were put on base by Trevor Bauer did not score. Uh, that doesn't include home runs, obviously, because, you know, they're not they're not put on a base. And that led the National League. And it was not even close. You Darvish was second with an eight three eight. So I'm going with Trevor Bauer as my National League Cy Young. But I really would not be surprised if he didn't win it, and I don't. I wouldn't be mad if he didn't either. Yeah, this is a um, like you say, it's a very interesting race. Uh, I I say it's interesting because of um, the difference in competition in a way. The same way. Mm-hmm. I view like the Cy Young runner up. So I'll start with Trevor Bauer. He led the league in hits and hits per nine with 5.1 whip with 0.80 ERA plus with 276 and ERA with 1.73. So those, you know, traditional statistics, he had them. He was also sixth in innings pitch with 73 fifth and fifth with 288 third and strikeout to walk ratio with 5.9 and second in strikeouts per nine with 12.3. One, I guess, detriment you can have to him, 10 out of 11 of his starts came against teams with an OPS plus of worse than 100. Uh, So that's almost all of his starts came against below average offenses. Uh, Hugh Darvish, he led the league in wins with eight, and FIP with 223. He was also third in innings pitch with 76, fourth in whip, eighth in strikeouts per nine, fourth in strikeouts, second in strikeout to walk ratio, and also second in ERA with a 201 ERA. He's exactly tied with Trevor Bauer in baseball reference war, and uh, nine out of his 12 starts came against below average offenses, offenses with an OPS plus worse than 100. And then we have Jacob deGrom, who kind of took the tougher path. He's on the east. He's facing those Mm -hmm. uh, tougher offenses. So you know, we have to look at these numbers maybe a little differently. He led the league in strikeouts with 104, and he led the league in strikeouts per nine with 13.8. He was fourth in ERA with a 2.38 ERA, second in FIP with a 2.26 FIP, and fourth in strikeout to walk ratio with 5.8. Eight out of 12 of his starts came against above average offenses. He was facing the Braves, Red Sox, Phillies, Rays, Blue Jays, and Nationals, some of those teams multiple times. And he trails Trevor Bauer and Hugh Darvish in baseball reference war by 0.1. And baseball reference war actually considers like the offenses you're facing and the defense that's behind you. That's why sometimes it gets a little confusing because, you know, guys with lower ERAs and more innings sometimes don't have as high of a war as another guy. But uh, that's why he's kind of right there with them, even though he's trailing in ERA um, and and innings so how i look at it is let me let me ask you something real quick do you think that peripherals should be i don't know if you're going to talk about this but do you do you think peripherals should be more or less considered in a shortened season um i mean peripherals are weird also because um now we got baseball savant i think trevor bowers expected era which is something i look at more than fip now because it considers what's actually in play. Yeah. Um, his expected ERA was like near the 100th percentile, I think, or something of That's, that nature. It was very good. I'm glad you mentioned that because I forgot to. So, yeah, I mean, 
peripheral it's weird i mean like if like zach davies had a 273 era and a 501 fip it's hard to like it would be hard to even though the result on the field was great it would be hard to like really consider him that way you know mm -hmm. I, I think maybe maybe yeah maybe it should be considered more because you're more likely to get lucky or unlucky in a 60 game season so maybe you can luck your way into a 273 era like zach davies um but yeah how i see the national league cy young i wrote i wrote down like conclusions i, I really treated this uh like like a like a school project i say because bauer and darvish had similar schedule and bauer had better numbers than darvish uh, i give that advantage to trevor bauer so then it comes down to bauer and Degrom. And despite DeGrom facing significantly stiffer competition, I still give Bauer the advantage because of the significant difference in ERA. Um, Bauer had a lower ERA by a, over half a run. And uh, Bauer also had almost an inning higher in innings per start. Bauer had 6.6 .6 innings per start. DeGrom only had 5.7 innings per start. So I believe Trevor Bauer should win the National League Cy Young Award because of this. And I believe he actually will win the National League Cy Young Award because, you know, they're looking at ERA and innings mostly. They're not going too in-depth. And even with that, I still think Trevor Bauer is the NL Cy Young. So now we're going on to MVPs. We are going on to the most valuable player. Let's do it. Yes. So we got Jose. We got two Jose's and a DJ. Uh, Jose Ramirez, Jose Abreu. DJ, 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 damn, I, I really glitched there. DJ LeMahieu. You lagged. Yeah. We'll call it that. We're on a zero Chris, call. Chris.exe. Okay. Stop working. So. <laughs> so, for my analysis here, uh, the first person I looked at when I considered these three candidates was DJ LeMahieu. And I considered him first because of i mean just the overall versatility of him as an offensive player you know he is the premier contact hitter in the league and he has been virtually his entire career but especially since he joined the yankees and his home road splits are kind of weird uh because they heavily favor yankee stadium and they of course heavily favored colorado uh but who cares uh, he's, he's doing what he should he led the majors in batting average he led the american league in obp he led the American League in OPS, and he led the league in OPS+. plus. Obviously, that should be enough for me to say he is the American League MVP, but the one thing that I do think has to hold him back is the fact that he got hurt and only played 50 games. So if you're curious, 50 out of 60 games is roughly 80, 83% of the season. And if you're curious as to what that would look like on a 162-game scale, that would mean he played about 134 games-ish. And if you want to think about someone who played 134 games, that would be Mike Trout in 2019. And Mike Trout in 2019 won the American League MVP. So that is something to think about. However, I do think in a shortened season that the time miss is going to be more considered because it's just, you know, you could lose this award in a week, but you could win it like just as easily. In fact, probably more easily than you can win it in a week. And I looked at what Jose Ramirez did in the month of September of this year, and it was absolutely remarkable. And he was also just very much there to begin the season as well. 
Uh, he finished the season uh, as the major league leader in wins above replacement and on the fan graphs, and that was no mistake at all. Uh, he had a 993 OPS, 163 OPS plus. Uh, his walk rate was a little down, but regardless, a 607 slugging is absolutely absurd. And Jose Abreu, just very consistent. He was probably the most consistent guy throughout the season as far as quality production throughout the whole season and actually being there. But I just don't think the the amount of production was enough. And with that being said, I'm going to go with Jose Ramirez as my American League MVP. Good, good, good. Uh, American League MVP, I would say, from my perspective, most fascinating uh, award, for me at least, um, mm-hmm. At least the way I look at, because value, they really mess with us. If it was the best it's still player, so arbitrary, yeah. Yeah, if it was, they the literally best tell player, the baseball writers to to make up your own definition of valuable. So it's so so arbitrary. That's why Kevin Pillar got MVP votes in 2019. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's why that's why Kevin Pillar was 22nd in uh, the MVP vote in 2019. But yeah, it's it's yeah. It's very arbitrary, and you know what? To, if it was the best player award, I think it would be a lot easier. But value, it's uh, it's real, very, very subjective. And like the, all three finalists, I wouldn't be mad at uh, winning, and I wouldn't be mad at one of four guys winning. I think Shane Bieber is also in the mix here, um, and even Mike Trout. Yeah, possibly, very, very much so. So I'm looking. I'm going to break down case by case. So Jose Ramirez, I think he has the most, he has the best complete stats. You know, he had 292 with a, th- with a 993 OPS. He also had 10 stolen bases, which is more than both Abreu and LeMahieu. Uh, and he had one out above average uh, in the field in 58 games. He leads in F4, uh, but he's fourth in B war because baseball reference doesn't like his defense for some reason. I trust baseball savant. And I think, He's more, it's more favored with uh, F4 in terms of that. Um, and his first 47 games, he had an 856 OPS. His last 11 games, he had a 1624 OPS. So I don't know if I, if I skew that in his favor because you like consistency or, you know, they went nine and two in those last 11 games. Uh, that's very valuable and it helped them get a home game in the playoffs. And uh, also one thing to add, he hit 345 with runners in scoring position throughout the season. So then I look at Jose Abreu. He hit 317 with a 987 OPS. Uh, That's only six points off from Ramirez in terms of OPS. Uh, And he also had two outs above average in 60 games. So if anyone's saying that he was a defensive liability, I think that's plain wrong based on what we're seeing from StatCast. Uh, Abreu also was a guy who kind of broke out, um, his first 21 games, he had a 701 OPS, then his next 10 games, 1748 OPS. It was ridiculous. They went, the White Sox went nine and one during that run. It was insane. So it was similar to what Ramirez did, except it was smacked right in the middle of the season. And then his last 29 games after that 10 game stretch, uh, he had a 932 OPS. It was very consistent. Um, he led the league in games played. Uh, with 60, he played all 60. He led the league in hits. He also led the league in RBI with 60, had an RBI per game. Uh, and he led the league in slugging with 617 and also led the league in total bases. Uh, he finished third in F4 among American League players. 
and he led the league in Amer he led the league in baseball reference war uh, among American leaguers. Also, in terms of consistency, uh, he was pretty consistent. He reached base safely in 55 out of the 60 games that he played, and those were the most amount of games someone reached base this year. Uh, so, in terms of consistency, it's even though he kind of struggled at the beginning, he was still getting at on base. He he didn't reach base only five times uh, this year, and he hit ended up hitting 329 with runners in scoring position uh, throughout the season. Then you have DJ LeMayhew, the last guy I'm going to mention. Uh, he led the league in average 364 on base percentage 421, and OPS uh, with 1011 in 50 games. Uh, he had negative one outs above average, uh, according to baseball savant. So kind of average defensively, uh, not a plus or a negative really. Uh, he had a 990 OPS in his first 19 games before injury. And then after injury had a 1024 OPS. So that's pretty much a mo model of consistency. He didn't really have any surges like Ramirez or Abreu. He was just kind of the heartbeat of the lineup the entire season while he was healthy, which was uh, 50 out of 60 games. And yeah, most consistent out of the candidates and he hit 364 with runners in scoring position. And an honorable mention is Shane Bieber. You know, he had an excellent season. He's a slam dunk candidate for the American League Cy Young. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't put him down, uh, you know, even if he was a finalist, I probably wouldn't put him down because I don't think uh, he had enough innings per start. He had less than six and a half innings per start. And I think I want an MVP caliber pitcher especially in a shortened season to be closer to seven innings per start, but maybe that's just me. Um, so I think it's fair that he's, you know, a guy that's going to be in fourth place or something like that. Um, but yeah, ultimately how I see it, D DJ LeMahieu is the most consistent in the heartbeat of the Yankees offense, but he did miss 10 games uh, and he did not have the defense or base running of, you know, his competition, Jose Ramirez. Uh, Jose Abreu, very similar to Jose Ramirez in the batter's box. As I mentioned, their OPS was extremely similar. They were in, within six points of each other. Um, and they had a very similar hot 10 to 11 game stretch where their OPS was, you know, a year where America was colonizing. It was in the 1600s, 1700s. It was insane, the, those uh, 10 to 11 game stretches. Um, but ultimately, I think Ramirez's consistent defense and base running especially uh, gives him the slight edge above the rest of the candidates. I think it's a very small difference between him and the rest of the candidates. And I believe Jose Ramirez should and will win American League MVP. Fascinating, fascinating uh, group of candidates there. I went a little long, but it was a yeah. deep dive, deep dive there. Oh, yeah. So now on to the National League MVP, which is a should be a relatively easy decision. Yeah, it should be. Uh, out of the three candidates, you have Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, and Manny Machado. Uh, Manny Machado, you had a great season, but thanks for coming out. I have a I have a question here. If they're going to nominate DJ LeMahieu, even though he played fifty games, why aren't we nominating Juan Soto? For National League MVP, yeah, I, I, uh, like what he did uh, was—I mean, he only played forty-seven games, but what he did was like what DJ did on steroids. I mean, he was absolutely absurd this year. 
Um, I guess the only argument a, a four ninety. That's the that's my argument against DJ is why he's not going to win it is because of the games played and that's why they didn't nominate Soto. Uh, Soto had a four ninety OBP, a six ninety five slugging for an eleven eighty five OPS. He was absolutely ridiculous, and I really wish he didn't have a false positive COVID test at the beginning of the season because that's the only thing that would have stopped him uh, from winning the MVP. Uh, all those all three of those stats that I mentioned. Uh, Soto led the league in. The second best person in the league was Freddie Freeman and all of them. Uh, so he is my winner. Um, I mean, there's not much else to be said. Freddie Freeman, outside of Soto, led an offensive war on base percentage, slugging percentage, and on base plus slugging. Uh, also led the majors in runs scored, led the majors in times on base, led the majors in doubles, and just about everything else he was right up there in. Uh, I, I don't know. There's not really much to be said other than that. Freddie Freeman should and will win the NL MVP. And I'm happy for him because he deserves it. Yeah, I definitely did not analyze uh, as much with the National League MVP as I did with the American League MVP. The Soto thing, the only argument I guess there is, and it's more of an old school thing, Juan Soto was not on a winning team. DJ LeMahieu was. So it's kind of the mm-hmm. subjective part of it, even though like, you know, one man can't carry a team, but uh, that's kind of the old school narrative. And I think that's why he's not a finalist. Uh, and DJ LeMahieu is. Uh, I'm So I'm going to, I'll do a little shout out to the candidates. Mookie Betts, uh, he hit 292 with a 927 OPS with 10 stolen bases and five outs above average uh, this season. He also was sixth in offensive war and seventh in defensive war in the National League. And uh, Mookie Betts was especially good with runners in scoring position. He hit 439 with runners in scoring position. Uh, he ended up being third in F war uh, among national leaguers, and he led the league in B war among national leaguers, surprisingly enough. Uh, Manny Machado, he hit 304 with a 950 OPS and also had a positive three outs above average as a defender. Uh, he finished eighth in offensive war and also eighth in defensive war. Machado was also very good with runners in scoring position. He hit 381. Uh, when there was a man on either second or third, and he was third among national leaguers in B war and sixth among national leaguers in F war, and then the main guy got to show some love to your national league MVP, Freddie Freeman. Uh, like Daniel mentioned, second in every slash line category: 341, 462, 640, 1102, um, and that was behind Juan Soto. Juan Soto accumulated only 75 percent of Freeman's plate appearances. So Freeman had about 25% more plate appearances than Soto did. And Freeman was second in B war uh, and first in F war among national leaguers. He hit 423 with runners in scoring position. It was ridiculous. And what I will point out his last 37 games, which is basically the final two thirds of the season, I guess you could say in his last 37 games, he hit 385 with a 1242 OPS. And in his last 37 games with runners in scoring position, he hit 515 with an 1825 OPS. That's how good Freddie Freeman was, especially uh, in those last 37 games. Freddie Freeman is the clear choice for all these reasons. Freddie Freeman should and will win National League MVP. And there's, there's our awards. I would like to uh, give some quick shout outs to Juan Soto because he has some ridiculous splits this year. So what the first thing I noticed, uh, 
in so the Nationals were 19 and 28 in games that Juan Soto played in. Uh, in those losses, he had a 1204 OPS and he had an 1147 OPS in wins. He also had 10 home runs in losses and only three in wins. So with that automatic, like the assumption there is that he's only doing it in garbage time. Uh, but with runners in scoring position, he hit 421 with a 1374 OPS. So that's obviously not the case. Yeah. Um, and then one real quick, uh, leading off innings, this doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but it's hilarious. Um, so Juan Soto had 34 plate appearances leading off an inning. Uh, only 25 of them registered as actual at-bats because he had eight walks and only one <laughs> strikeout. And his slash line was uh, 520, 647, 1160, 1807. Dang. Leading off an inning. Dang. Which is hilarious. It's that's not even fair. So yeah. um I just I just wanted to show some appreciation to Juan Soto because he is he if it wasn't for a po- the false positive COVID test, he would have been the National League MVP. And he would have been and I he was my preseason prediction too. So yeah, that kind of screwed me from being right. That's tough. Yeah. Um yeah, and uh yeah, we weren't we weren't too great with our yeah preseason award picks, but I think uh, one win for me, Kevin Cash. I, yeah, that's that's the one that's the one I have out of eight. Uh, my uh, my Clevenger's not going to. I don't think I had, I don't think I had any because I had. What did I have? Uh, yeah, no, I had Luis Robert and Gavin Lux as the rookies of the year. Went real edgy. Um, what I had, Kevin. Robert. I had Aaron Boone and David Ross. I had Tyler Glasnow and Steven Strasburg. Those flopped big time. And then I had Soto and Trout. Yeah. Trout's up there. Yeah. I had Matt Chapman. That didn't really work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my AL one. Yeah. Oh, man, I would have been right if Soto didn't have a false positive test. 100%. But I'm happy for Freddie Freeman. And Soto, Soto will have plenty of time to win a National League MVP. He is... Uh, he just finished his age 21 season. Yeah, I was about to say, we're going to me- be mentioning him in several award shows yes. <laughs> yeah. in the future. Yeah. The craziest uh, thing about him is at a young age, someone normally is just like a free swinger and not very patient. He has a 415 career OBP through hundred through uh, 1,110 at-bats. Yeah, there. I think his rookie year there was over a 100 point difference between average and on base percentage. Yeah, I wonder where that on base percentage ranks all time among players through their age 21 season because it's got to be like top three. Well, it's tough. It's tough because I don't know if there's many uh, many players who have like Mel as Ox, many plate appearances as it does. Williams. Yeah, I'll I'll put some sort of like filter on it. Uh, I'll set some sort of minimum or whatever. Uh, okay, we're gonna go. I'm gonna do this right now. So since 1871, uh, we're gonna go. This this might take a little bit because fan graphs has to load. We're gonna go age 14 to age 21. Filter this the is, age. This is stat finding. This is this is what we do. Yeah, this is this is the big moment where we find out Juan Soto. Um, yeah, does he not qualify? Like... Oh no, he does. Okay, he's top five. He's fifth. Uh, it go the order goes: Ted Williams number one, Jimmy Fox number two, Mel Ott number three, 
John McGraw, number four, and Juan Soto, number five. Yeah, that that checks out. Outside of John McGraw, it's all guys with 90-plus baseball reference war total yeah. in their career. And obviously Juan Soto, too. Yeah, and then Juan Soto. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, pretty insane. Pretty insane what he all can right. do better. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that wraps it up. That's our award show um, for 2020, our kind of picks and predictions. Uh, if you enjoy the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, you can check the show out on YouTube, our YouTube channel. It is called SGBNL with Chris Gianta and Daniel Curran. If you want to follow us on social media, follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel at Daniel underscore Curran on both Twitter and Instagram. And follow the show Instagram at STBNL Podcast. It's probably going to be a little more active. We're going to be starting doing history. Uh, we're mm. starting this week. This week we got Greg Maddox and the 2016 Cubs. Um, so we got that ramping up. So like, yeah, it's the off season, but specifically this off season, the show is not slowing down at all. In fact, it's probably speeding up. Uh, oddly enough. So. We hope you enjoyed our award show and we hope to see you on Wednesday when we're going to be talking about Greg Maddox. See you then.